There was a rather well-known missionary in the 20th century. His name was E. Stanley Jones. He was a missionary over to India. He was a rather well-known missionary, actually. He was known as the Billy Graham of India, quite the preacher. And Jones, he loved being in India. He loved India because at the time it was this place where all these different religions kind of came together. There was Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Christianity, and they all kind of met in India. And so it gave Jones the opportunities to have all kinds of conversations, conversations with people of a wide variety of faiths and a lot of leaders of these faiths. And so as he's having these conversations, he begins writing books and he writes books about the supremacy of Jesus and how really there is no one like him. Well, when Jones was in his 80s on a speaking trip, he had this stroke and it was a terrible stroke. He laid on his, hot, on his hotel bed for five hours, over five hours, before someone discovered that something was wrong. And then they came and found him. And he had lost the movement in half of his body. He couldn't hear out of one ear. And during his 18 months of recovery, between the time he had his stroke and then his eventual death, well, he felt compelled to write one last book, called of God, really, to write this book. And the book was called The Divine Yes. And it was in response. He really wanted everyone to know, hey, this is what I've been preaching my whole life. This is what I've been saying my whole life. As I've interacted with all these people of various faiths, and I hear the negativity that they preach and, and the, the evil of all of their ways. He's like, the one thing about Christianity is that Jesus is God's divine yes. He is the divine yes to humanity, the yes of forgiveness, the yes of being a new creation, the yes of redemption, the yes of purpose, the yes of a reason for being. He's the yes to all of God's promises that Christianity has this message of the divine yes. Somewhere along the lines, the church has misplaced that message, haven't we? All too often we're known not so much for having this message of the divine yes, but a resounding no. I mean, you ask almost any uh, person on the street, any unbeliever on the street to talk about Christianity and they'll tell you about a God who says no, no to this and no to that, what Christianity is against rather than what we're for. It's an old, old problem, really. It's an old, old message. Yeah, it goes all the way back. We'll see it this morning as we journey back to the prophet Jonah. Oh, it's a well-known prophet, uh, uh, but it's more than a story about a man and Nineveh and a fish. No, it's a story that has this resounding no. And one of the reasons why we know Jonah so well is maybe more than we'd like to admit. We find ourselves saying the same thing to God that Jonah said to God. And we really dig down deep. We can see that we're a lot more like Jonah than we are God. Let's go ahead and check it out this morning. Jonah chapters three and four. Jonah writes, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will, shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from their violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how he turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is what I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plan and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from, dis from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked God that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being at night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. 722 BC, 722 BC, you need to remember that date. It's an important date and it's helpful to remember when studying the minor prophets because that is the date when Assyria attacked Israel and overran Israel. All the Assyrian armies, they come into the northern kingdom and Israel vanishes. This is the time when we lose 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. You're familiar, the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of them were lost with the Assyrian invasion. What's the significance of all that? Why is that important? Well, according to the dating of Jonah, this would happen about 40 years after Jonah preached. After Jonah comes into Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, and preaches this message, well, the Assyrians will attack just a generation later. Now, what takes place? How can there be this great revival in Assyria in a generation later, in a generation's time? Assyria seems worse off than they were before Jonah even showed up. How does that happen? Hold on to that thought, 722 BC, hold on to that date. 
You remember the story of Jonah. As we talked about last week, God comes to Jonah and he says, hey, Jonah, I'm appointing you. You're going to be my prophet. You're going to be my messenger. And I want you to go to Nineveh and preach this message. And Jonah says, Nineveh, no way. I don't want to go there. And so instead of hopping to Nineveh, he runs. He runs and he hops on a boat headed to Tarshish. He makes sure that he's getting as far away from Nineveh as he possibly could. Nineveh was east, so he's going west to the end of the known world at that time to Tarshish to Spain and as he's getting there as he's running in this ship uh, this furious storm comes up and the sailors it's uh, it makes them afraid I mean these experienced sailors they're afraid Jonah's not and Jonah's sleeping the sailors they're afraid they're all praying they're crying out to God and while they're in the middle of the Mediterranean <laughs> This captain goes down, he wakes Jonah up and they begin to interrogate him. They're asking him questions and Jonah finally says, hey, I'm the guy. This is why this is happening. And if you want to get out of this alive, you're going to need to throw me overboard. Well, the sailors, they don't want to murder the guy. So they try rowing as hard as they could, see if they could get back to land. And the storm just go, grows wilder and wilder. And so then they pray to the one true God. This little revival amongst the sailors take place. And they say, please, God, do not hold this man's life against us. And so they throw him overboard. And what do you know? the storm stops. I mean, you can imagine being one of those sailors, can't you? As you're on the edge of the deck and you're looking out over the bow of the boat and you're saying, oh, what's going to happen to Jonah? The storm has stopped, but what's going to happen to him? How long is he going to last in those waters? They must surely be thinking that they're going to watch Jonah die, just drown in the waters of the Mediterranean. And the next thing you know, what happens? This big fish comes up and swallows Jonah. I mean, what an incredible sight to see. Now, here's the funny thing about the story. We all make a big deal as, well, what kind of fish could it have been? What, what fish is big enough to swallow a man? And so we ask the biologists and they tell us, well, these fish have this size of throat. Maybe this one could do it. Maybe it was this kind of fish. And then we ask the question, well, what would happen to a man if he was in the belly of a fish for three days? What would that do to a person? And, and we ask all these questions and we miss it because what was Assyria known to worship? A fish god. How ironic is that? Assyria, the place where Jonah is supposed to go, they were known to worship a fish god. In fact, you can get ancient Assyrian stuff, stuff we've discovered and excavated, and you know what you'll find? Fish all over it. When Jonah hit the water, God seemed to say, oh, Jonah, you're going to love this next part. You, you, you're going to find this real funny. Just wait until you see what's next, Jonah. And a fish saves him. A fish saves him. It was this image, you know, in the early church of a, of a fish as savior that the early church picked up. It's Jesus Christ, uh, son of God, savior. That, that saying, Jesus Christ, son of God, savior. You take the first letters of that and you get the Greek word fish. And so what does the early church do? They use that symbol. They make the mark of the fish. They, they put it on their homes. They put it on their churches. They, they want people to know that this is a place of blessing. This is a place of safety. This is a place of peace. <laughs> you know, we could do well to model that example, couldn't we? To follow in that, to show people where we live that, yes, this, our homes, they're places of peace. They're places of blessing. Our home should be marked that way, you know? And so anyhow, Jonah, he's swallowed by the fish. 
Jonah prays, he repents, he agrees to go to Nineveh, he agrees to preach, and the fish throws him up. And so Jonah does, he goes to Nineveh, and Jonah does preach. God says, preach, Jonah preaches. Jonah keeps the letter of the law. He does exactly what God tells him to do, and he goes throughout Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. He's making sure everyone hears the message, and it's a big city to get through. It takes three days to go through and make sure everyone hears this message. But the message is very simple. 40 days, Nineveh, no more. That's it. That's the entirety of the message. 40 days, Nineveh, no more. There's no real call to repentance. There's no coming alongside says, hey, here's the plans that God has for you. This is what it looks like to be in relationship with God. Here's what God wants for you. No, it's simply 40 days, Nineveh, no more. It's this pronouncement of judgment. You have 40 days and then you're going to be destroyed. (laughs) You know, you almost wonder if Jonah took a little joy in delivering that message. He he may have. The the fact of the matter is Jonah did not love Nineveh. He hated Nineveh. Now he had plenty of reasons for hating Nineveh, but he hated Nineveh. Hate was in the heart of this prophet. There was no doubt Jonah wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. So after he was finished preaching, (laughs) what does Jonah do? He goes up on a hill, makes himself a little place to sit down, folds his arm, crosses his legs, and just watches, just waits to see Nineveh be destroyed. This is what he's waiting for. He's just yearning for God to come and destroy Nineveh. He's going to sit and watch it all happen. When Nineveh was not destroyed, well, Jonah became angry. He got really mad. I knew you were this kind of God. I knew you would relent. I knew of your compassion. I knew your steadfast love. I knew that if they repented that you would relent. I knew this would happen. I'd rather be dead than to see Nineveh do well. (laughs) It's hot in the middle of the desert. And God, he provides Jonah a vine, this plant that grows up quickly, gives Jonah a little bit of shade. And then what happens? Jonah's happy. I mean, you almost want to take out a crayon at this portion of the book and draw yourself a little picture and hang it on your refrigerator. Why? Because it's the only time in the book where Jonah's happy. He's he's happy. He's got this plant. He's got some shade. (laughs) Then what happens? A worm comes and eats the vine and the scorching sun comes and Jonah's miserable and he wants to die. And God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Yeah, I do well to be angry, he says. I'm I'm angry enough to die. That's good for me. You didn't plant the vine, Jonah. You didn't water it. You didn't take care of it. You didn't do anything to make it grow. But now it's died, and you're more upset that the vine has died than all the people of Nineveh. You care more about a vine than you do the people. There's 120,000 people in this city, Jonah, and you care more about a vine than the people. And did you catch how God described those people? They're people who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. Now, who doesn't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand? Children. God's saying these people are like children. They don't know. They don't know. And how are they going to know unless somebody tells them? And how is somebody going to tell them unless someone is sent? And God says, Jonah, I'm sending you and I'm sending you with a message and you're there to tell them. This is why you're a prophet to introduce these people to me. And Jonah, no, 
He wouldn't be happy unless Nineveh was destroyed. He had no room in his heart to see them repent and to see God relent. The very idea that God would be gracious, the very idea that God would be compassionate, the very idea that he would refrain from sending his judgment and his destruction upon Assyria made Jonah furious. It's kind of like being a Yankee or a Red Sox fan. I speak as a Yankee fan. You know, during baseball season, if the Yankees win and the Red Sox win on the same day, it's really only a half good day, you know. I mean, really, for a Yankee fan to be really excited, the Yankees need to win and the Red Sox need to lose. It's not enough just for the Yankees to win. You want to see some sorrow going on in Red Sox country. That's just how it works. And this is how Jonah is. For Jonah to have a good day, it's not just enough for Israel to prosper. No, Assyria needs to be destroyed. He would rather die than to see Nineveh believe in God. This is the heart of the prophet. Now, the reason for the book of Jonah, the reason why this is in the scriptures, is to illustrate something to Israel and Judah. It demonstrates to them that you have abandoned your mission. You've abandoned your reason for being in world history, that God created you to be a nation for himself. When God called Abraham out of Ur, he was forming a people who would have this special relationship with God, a people who who would become this new nation, a nation of light to all the other nations, a nation that was like this city on the hill showing all other nations, this is why God has made us. This is how we live and interact with him. This is how he shapes our worldview, a nation that that would reach all the other nations with the good news of who God is and who people are made to be. But Israel didn't want that. Israel didn't want that. So so they reject this missionary, disciple-making calling that they'd been given. And what do they want? Oh, they want a king like every other nation. Oh, Samuel tries to warn Israel, you don't want a king. But what happens? Israel forges ahead anyway, and they chose Saul. And we know of the bloodshed and the disarray and the separation and all the hurt and all the pain that happens under the reigns of all the kings, some of them believers and many of them not. But they reject the idea of being the people that God had called them to be, of being the light to all the other nations. And Jonah, oh, he just exemplifies that. Jonah rejects the notion that being a prophet of God means to introduce people to God so they could have a special relationship with him as well. So they could see their lives restored and their purpose and their reason for being reclaimed so they could be shaped by God's love in this chaotic world. No, Jonah, he didn't want any part of that message. This was the role of a prophet to go to the people, to introduce the people to God. It didn't matter what city they lived in. It didn't matter what country they were from. God has always been about reaching all people. Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. He wants all people for himself. But for Jonah, it was us and them. And Nineveh, was then. The only people Jonah wanted saved was us, was Israel. If Nineveh gets saved, that makes them one of us. And he didn't want them one of us. He wants them to stay them and not us. And so Jonah, he delights in the suffering of Nineveh. He's looking forward to the destruction of Nineveh. Jonah doesn't hang around to disciple them. 
He doesn't teach them the laws of God. He doesn't show them, hey, this is what it means to be a child of God, how this impacts every part of who we are. And so what happens in Assyria? Well, you have this very short, almost flash-in-the-pan revival that does not change the character of Nineveh. No, they, they felt bad. They repented. They, they stopped their violence. They got rid of the evil for a little bit. But no one stayed long enough to say, okay, here's what it looks like to live in this relationship. Here's God's word. Here's how he communicates to us. Here's what he wants for us. Here's how you relate to him. And here's how you relate to others. No one hangs around to disciple them. And so their behavior does not change. You know, it's like the plant that Jesus talked about. Jesus talked about that plant, the this, this seed that falls on this sh shallow soil. And all that plant, it grows up real fast. And then the sun comes up and scorches it, dries it out because it didn't have the deep roots. And most of us, we know people like that, don't we? We know people who have this shallow emotional response, but that relationship with Jesus, no, it never really took root. It just got scorched out. Jonah, he didn't love Assyria. He didn't love Nineveh. He didn't love the people enough to stay and to help them understand what it meant to be in relationship with God, what it meant to live for him. He didn't love them enough to walk alongside them and to show them, hey, this is what the fruit of repentance looks like. Here's how we now live. So as Jesus warns in Matthew chapter 12, some of us, we can be like this house owner who we recognize there's a demon. And so we clean up the house. We get rid of the demon. We empty it. It's clean. And, but we don't let anyone else live there. No one else comes to take residence. And so the demon, it goes out and it looks for another place to live. And it can't find another place. And so it comes back to the house that it was kicked out of. And he comes back and he finds the house is clean, but empty. And so the demon, he says, I'm moving back in. Only this time, he brings seven of his demon buddies with him. And now what happens? Oh, you're worse off than you were before. See, it wasn't a matter of not doing wrong. It's a matter of filling your life with Christ. And if you fill your life with Jesus, what happens? He floods everything else out. Because he gives you clarity of purpose. He gives you reason for being. Too many times people think that Christianity is about not doing wrong. It's about, oh, if I don't do this, if I don't do that, if I don't do that, then I'm good. And we can come and celebrate that I didn't do all those bad things. No, we throw the demon out, but we don't replace him with anything. Because we think that Christianity is really this resounding no. And we leave it empty. Understand this. Christianity is the divine yes. Christianity is about this life-giving relationship, a relationship that's full of, of life and adventure and excitement. Yes, danger is all mixed in there. There's all of that. But if you don't love people enough to disciple them, you'll leave them worse off than they were before because they'll be empty. They won't be filled with this life that Jesus gives. If you don't love people enough to disciple them, you leave them worse off than they were before. Jonah, he leaves Assyria empty, 
oh, these people, they're, they're repenting, they're praying, they're, they're trying to relent of their violence, they're trying to not do the bad things, but they're not filled with anything. And so what happens? They're worse off than they were before. And in 722 BC, just 40 years later, Israel or Assyria wipes out Israel. What would have happened if Jonah would have loved Nineveh enough to hang around? What would have happened if Jonah would have gone there and he would have stayed in Nineveh and he would have caused these enemies to become friends? What would have happened if he would have stayed with them and walked alongside them and shown them the life that God wants for them and taught them the scriptures? What would have happened? How would their lives have been different? What would have happened if they would have become these followers of God? that sought to, to live as God wants them to live, if they would have loved God the way that Jonah did, would it have changed history? Would it have prevented wars? How would things have been different? But they weren't different because Jonah didn't love them enough to hang around. He didn't love them enough to stay. Yeah, he may have preached there, but there was no relationship there. He, he preached out of obligation, out of duty, but not out of love. Listen, you cannot disciple people that you do not know. And you cannot disciple people that you don't love. You have to be able to show people that you love them and how the word applies to them. You can't disciple people you don't love. Jonah, he preached, but he didn't love. He didn't hang around long enough to take the time to get to know the people. And if you don't know the people, you can't love the people. And so what happens, Jonah, he's just sitting up there with his arms folded and he's angry. And now all these years later, too many of us sit up on our hills with our arms folded too, like Jonah full of complaints about different people. No, if they would just do this and the decisions they're making are bad. I wish they'd change this. I wish they'd do this differently. And we can look with this critical eye towards people for all the bad things that they're doing. And yeah, they do a lot of bad things. Some of these people, we've, we've got our list. And you look, well, Steve, if you just knew these people, I, I know, I, I don't know them. I don't know what they've done to you. I don't know the hurt they've caused. I don't know the decisions they've made, the pain that's, that comes with all that. But I know this that God's grace is sufficient for them. And that if you ever give up and you ever say, well, <laughs> it'd just be better if God's just done with that person. There's nothing going on there. That's a lost cause. Understand this. It's not about the depth of their depravity. It's about the power of the cross. It's the divine yes that God can look at that person and say, yes, there's forgiveness. Yes, there's redemption. Yes, there's a purpose. Yes, there's still reason for being. Yes, I still have plans for you. It's not the resounding no, it's the divine yes. And now he calls us. We look at Jonah and we say, how can a prophet of God behave that way? I mean, he's got a mission to, to give. He's got to tell people about God. And he's, he's this messenger. Do you understand? This is the same responsibility that we now wear. I mean, we are now a kingdom of priests. We are to go and to introduce people to God. And you can't do that unless you take the time to get to know people. And if you don't take the time to get to know people, you won't love people. And it's possible not to love people and just go out of duty and to ask a couple questions or to leave a, lead them in a short prayer and then to go away. And what happens oftentimes? Oh, well, you can leave them worse off than they were before. 
because you never took the time to sit down and actually walk with them through life and show them this is what God wants for you. It's not that God is this God of no. No, no, no. Quite the contrary. God is the God of yes. Yes for purpose. Yes for reason. Yes, he still has plans for you. Yes, he wants to use you. Yes, you're a new creation. You're going to be this person of impact. This is what you're made for. God is a God of the divine. Yes. But if we don't know people, if we don't love people, we can be like, a lot like Jonah. Oh, we might do some things out of obligation. But if we're not careful, we can leave them worse off than they were before. Heavenly Father, God, make us more like you. A heart for people, more than a vine or anything else. God, forgive us for when we're like Jonah. You've given us this responsibility as a kingdom of priests to introduce people to you. May we know them and love them enough to do that. We need your help. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.